Turn to Romans chapter 8. Today we wrap up our four-week series in Romans chapter 8, which I think is about like spending five minutes at the Grand Canyon. Uh, We could probably spend a year in this chapter and not get bored, but I think we've done some good work nonetheless. So I'll start reading in verse 28 to the end of the chapter. Follow as I read and remember as we read that this is the Word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So in uh, week one of this four-part series, we talked about one of the great promises that is found there in verse one of chapter eight, that there is no condemnation from God for our sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the condemnation was put on Christ. He took it all on Himself on the cross so that there is no more condemnation, no more punishment for us. In week two, we talked about how all Christians have the Holy Spirit. How He empowers us to new life in Christ, to believe the Gospel, to fight sin, to walk in God's ways, not in the ways of our sin. The text calls that to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And then last week we talked about living with a focus on our eternity. Living with a focus on the eternal security that we have in Christ. We we are adopted children of God. We are co-heirs to the family inheritance with Jesus. All the while embracing the fact that suffering is necessary on the path to glory. Just like little Tao Contreras, uh, 
he was officially Brandon and Bess's son before they went to get him from China and brought him home to be with him. So, too, we are officially God's children. There is great security in that for us, yet we are somewhere in the in-between of the adoption process. We're already His children, and yet we're not yet home. The Lord will get us home to be with Him uh, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sin. But the path to get there will involve suffering and even great suffering. We must persevere through our trials to the end. Remembering verse 28, that God works all things for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. He works all things, both good and bad, for the good of His people. In fact, uh, the context of this promise in our passage is that it's given in the midst of a section talking about persevering through suffering. So it makes sense that that promise that all things work together for good is of particular comfort to us in our hardships. Remember the quote from Thomas Watson. It was so good, I'm going to read it again. He said, The expression work together, as in all things work together for our good, that expression work together refers to medicine. Several poisonous ingredients put together, being tempered by the skill of the apothecary, the medicine maker, make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. So all of God's providences being divinely tempered and set apart for us work together for the best to the saints. He who loves God and is called according to His purpose may rest assured that everything in the world shall be for your good. So the Lord takes even the most poisonous of circumstances in our lives which standing on their own, would threaten to kill us. And He works them together into just the right medicine to work it for our good. Now, uh, we have further context of that promise in verses 29 and 30. Here we find the roots of the promise that God works all things for the good of His people. And notice the for, F-O-R, at the beginning of verse 29. Or you could say because. We know that God works all things for the good of His people, and we know this because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Uh, This is called by many the golden chain of redemption. It spans from before time began to the end of time. God's foreknowledge and predestination of His people is before He created the world. And into real time when He called and justified us with Him. To the end of our lives and really to the end of time when we are glorified in His presence um, at the end. So, the golden chain of redemption. The roots of the promise that all things work together for the good of God's people. And really, it's the roots of all assurance Not only that all things will work together for good for us in this life, but ultimately that we will get through this life to be with the Lord in glory. 
So, we're going to take a closer look in verses 29 and 30 at the roots of our eternal hope and security in Christ. And then we'll spend a little bit of time in 31 through 39 as we look at the fruits that grow out of the roots, the fruits of these promises in our lives that we are secure with God. Okay, first the roots. Those whom God foreknew. The first root is God's foreknowledge. first root of our security in Christ is God's foreknowledge of His people. Now, there's a sense in which God knows everyone and everything, right? He is God. Uh, he, he knows it all. But that's not what this is talking about. The golden chain of redemption is talking about those who are saved. So there is a particular way that God knows saved people differently than He knows all people, and that's called foreknowledge. Those who will not be saved, of course, are known by God, uh, but they are not foreknown by God. Okay? So God knows everyone in some sense, but He does not foreknow everyone. Now, many people want to make this say that God foresaw Those that God foresaw, He predestined, right? Maybe you've heard that at one time or another, that God looked down the corridor of time, He saw those that would choose Him during their life, and um, based on what He saw, He predestined them. He determined uh, to save them. Well, there's a couple problems with that. The first problem is pretty concise. That's not what it means. But the second problem... um, if you just kind of flesh that out, that makes the person, if you think about it, that makes the person who made the choice to believe in and follow the Lord the determining factor in the whole scenario. Like God only chooses those that choose Him first. So in order for God to choose you, you have to choose God, and God's just waiting to see kind of what happens. Um, That's not what it's saying, and I think anyone who honestly reads this can tell that this isn't about what we do. This is about what God has done Uh, That's the context of the passage. The only reason we choose God is because God chose us. I will say this. If that is what it's saying, that God looked down the corridor of time and He saw that you would choose Him, and based on that, He determined to act, then you can just throw everything that I'm saying out the window about finding the roots of your assurance for salvation here in this text. If the roots of your assurance are a choice that you made to believe in the Lord, to follow the Lord, then the roots are very shallow and they're not going to provide much growth. Thank the Lord that's not what it's saying. Again, it does not say that God foresaw. It says that God foreknew. Foreknowing is a lot different than foreseeing. I'll try to explain it with a different scenario. So, um, when the Bible says that Adam knew his wife, what does that mean? He had sex with her. Thank you. If it were to say that Adam saw his wife, what would that mean? He looked at her. Didn't have sex with her. I see where you're going. Uh, yeah, it would mean that he saw her, pervert. <laughs> uh, it would just mean that he looked at her. That God foreknew those that He predestined 
and called and justified and glorified. Uh, That He foreknew those that He would save means that He initiated an intimate relationship with us before the world began. It has this... uh, it means something of intimacy and, you know, like knowing your wife. God foreknew us. That is a root of assurance. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God initiated an intimate relationship with you before time began, before He even created the world. And God is faithful. He always finishes what He starts. He initiated it. He's going to complete what He set out to do. Next, those that He foreknew, He predestined. Again, this is talking about those who are saved. And it means that God determined to save His people before the world began. God initiated a loving relationship with us before the world began. And out of that love flowed a rock-hard resolve to save us. Nothing could stop Him. So we see this in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. It says, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, not our will, His will, to the purpose of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved, in in Christ. God initiated a loving relationship with His people, sometimes called the elect, He initiated that relationship with us before the world began. Out of that love grew a rock-hard resolve to save us from sin. So, He sent His Son to do just that. To save His people from our sins. To save those that He foreknew and predestined. Not to make us savable, but to done deal, put it in the bank. It is finished, Jesus said, save us. Now, At this point, some people have questions or concerns. We will have time for questions or comments at the end, uh, but I'll deal with a couple here now. First, some people hear these things and immediately go to thinking about those who are lost, those who are not saved. So what are you saying about them? Well, I think there are good answers, and we could have a long conversation about that. But I would just say to you this. There is a time to consider such things, uh, but now is not that time. Because uh, I think that's one of the tactics of the enemy when we consider this passage. He doesn't want us to consider the roots of our assurance in Christ. So we got to get start thinking about all these other scenarios and things. But God intends for you to think about yourself in this passage. He is saying something to you, to us, to His people, about how safe our souls are because of what He's done in Christ. So He wants us to think about us, to think about our eternal security in Christ. Next, uh, some people say, if I believed that, if I believed that God chose me and I am His no matter what, Uh, then I would just live however I want to. Unfortunately, many people who say they believe that they are predestined by God do live however they want to, but they do not believe in biblical predestination. They believe in a predestination that they have conjured up in their own understanding, which is no predestination at all, because 
biblical predestination leads you to live a life more and more and more and more in conformity to Christ's likeness. How do I know that? Look at the text. Those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's predetermined choice to save His people fleshes out in our lives growing in Christ-likeness. And ultimately, in being fully transformed to His likeness and image at the end. So this is a problem for the person who claims to believe in predestination but lives however you want to. It begs the question, which predestination have you gotten a hold of? It's not God's. But it's also a problem for the person who will not believe in predestination because if I believed in that, then I would just live however I want. Or if people believed in that, then people would just believe however they want. Well, to say it strongly, I think then you're calling God a liar. Because you're saying that God is not able to do what He set out to do. You're at least calling Him impotent, powerless to do what He set out to do. Because He predestined His people to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what predestination is for. He predetermined to save us from our sins, to rescue us from our sins, to transform us to His likeness and image. Increasingly throughout our lives, big word we call sanctification, but ultimately in our glorification when we are in His presence in glory. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And then it says, those He predestined, He also called. So, God's foreknowledge and predestination took place before He created the world, uh, but the call of His people takes place in real time during the course of our lives. Theologians call this the effectual call. And this is not referring to the general gospel call. That call is to go out to every person. Right? We preach the gospel to everyone. Because we don't know who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. And, and we go and tell everyone uh, the gospel, that God has sent His Son in the world to save us, to save the world from sin. And um, the gospel is to be preached to everyone, but not every person is effectually called. Not every person is drawn to faith in Christ. In John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Unless the Father draws him to Me. That drawing is the call. The effectual call. So, for those who remember your conversion to Christ, which isn't all of us. Some of us were very young. Some of us, you know, uh, it, it seemed more like a process in our lives. I think that Biblically, we would say there was an an actual moment for everyone um, when you truly came to life in Christ, but not everyone knows the moment. There's nothing wrong with that. But for those that do remember, you can look back leading up to that moment and you can see God at work in your life drawing you to Himself, arranging circumstances, putting you through whatever He was putting you through, uh, and it couldn't be stopped. It was determined by God He was going to save you and you couldn't resist it. You had tried to resist it for long enough and He effectually called you into fellowship with Him. 
And even if you don't remember, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you were called to that faith by God. He loved you so much, not only that He sent His Son for you, but that He, you know, I tell people my, son, my story in short is I ran from God, He ran me down. That's my testimony. And in some way, shape, or form, that's all of our story. We have run from God in our sin, but He is uh, ruthless in His love for us. He will not let us go. He is committed to us. He is faithful. We are not faithful. But He loves us. And those that are called, those that He called, He also justified. So, at that moment when you first put your faith in Jesus Christ, God slammed the gavel in the courtroom of heaven and He pronounced you not guilty in His sight. Now, That's astounding because all of your sins were there to testify against you. And Satan, the accuser, is there as the prosecuting attorney to point to all of these sins. And there's so many of them. They're they're filing out the door screaming, look at me, look at what he or she has done. And God says, not guilty. Not only does He say not guilty, but righteous, holy, Because that is the requirement to be in fellowship with God. We have to be perfectly righteous, spotless, blameless, without sin. So how could He justify us? How could He call us not guilty? Declare it to be so and declare us to be righteous and welcome us into His presence, into fellowship with Him eternally. Because Jesus lived a righteous life in your place, in our place for our sins. And He died for our sins on the cross. Um, I'm sure I've done this in here before, but it's helpful for me. Imagine two books. One is the book of your life. One is the book of Jesus' life. And they both have book covers on them. Okay, So you go to Jesus' life and you look through it and every page, every chapter is perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous, no sin. You go to your life, you know, you were cute in the beginning, but there was sin there, even still. And then, yee, that's a bad chapter. You know, sin everywhere. It's not pretty. But what God has done in the Gospel is He has switched the book covers. So, He put your sin on Christ. And He gives you... Jesus' credit. Jesus' life. So I forget which one's which now. But now, you open the book of Jesus' life and all of that was put on... uh, All of your sin is there because it was put on Him on the cross. Your whole story. Book cover says Jesus' life and you open it and you see your story and it was put on Him. Book cover says Chris' life. Your life. You open it, and what you see is perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous, without sin. That's how God sees you. Because of what He's done in Christ. There is no more condemnation. There is no more sin. There is perfect righteousness. If there wasn't, you would not be in God's family. But that's what He's done. He has justified, not guilty, Righteous. He has justified you in His courts, those that He called. 
Those that God foreknew, He predestined. Those that He predestined, He also called. Those that He called, He also justified. And those that He justified, He also glorified. So our glorification refers to the time when our faith turns to sight. Right? When we are in the Lord's presence, when there is no more sin and no more pain and no more death, when we will get a new resurrected body, uh, we will be glorified. But the thing that is amazing in this passage is that it says it has already happened. Notice that all of the roots of assurance are in the past tense. Those He foreknew, He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. And this makes sense for the first four. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified because all of those are in the past, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I mean, foreknowledge, predestination, that happened before He created the world. If you've been called and justified, you're a believer, that's already happened in your life, that makes sense. It's all in the past. But we are not yet glorified. We are not yet free of our remaining sin. We still have suffering. We uh, have yet to pass through death into resurrection glory in the Lord's presence. Yet, it is written in the past tense just like the other ones. So what does that mean? It means that just as surely as God foreknew and predestined you, just as surely as He initiated a loving relationship with you before the world began, just as surely as He determined to save you, just as surely as He did save you on the cross, just as surely as He called you to Himself in real time during your life, just as surely as He slammed the gavel and justified you in His courts when you believed in Him, you will be glorified. It's as good as done. So much so, it's written in the past tense. Remember our union with Christ, something we've talked a lot about in this little section. We are united to Jesus by faith, to all of who He is and all of what He has done. So, our life was His life, or better yet, His life is our life. His death was our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. So we know that when we die, we will live because He is alive. Just as surely as He was raised and went back to glory, so too we will rise and be with Him. In a very real sense, we are already there because we are in Christ and He is there. So this provides the the context for verse 28. That great promise that we love. We know that God works all things together for the good of those that love Him. And we know that because He foreknew us and He predestined us and He called us and He justified us and He glorified us. He is working for our ultimate good from before time to the end of time and He will take everything in time to work toward those perfect ends. So that even our trials and sufferings, poisonous as they may be, work in the hands of God like medicine for our good. And not only do we know that He works all things for good 
for His people in this life, but we can be certain that we will make it through this life to the end. So last week we talked about the need to persevere through our trials to get to glory. And that is true. It is true. Don't quit. Whatever you're, whatever you're facing, whether it's just uh, suffering that you didn't ask for, whether it's suffering that you brought on yourself through your own sin, don't quit. We must persevere to the end to be saved. But we must see that the foundation of our perseverance is the rock-solid hope that God will preserve us to the end. So the question is not, can a Christian lose salvation? The question is, can God lose one of His people? And the answer is, absolutely not. The roots of our assurance in verses 29 and 30 and in verses 31 to 39, we have the fruits, where, where Paul is asking a series of questions, um, questions to which he knows the answer. He has just considered the Christian's eternal security. Remember, I said that's the great theme in this whole chapter, from beginning to end. No condemnation, adopted into God's family, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And out of that has grown in Paul's mind and heart a great sense of confidence, of assurance, even boldness that we read about in verses 31 and following at just how secure we are in Christ. So let's pass through this section a little bit and uh, I'll make some comments as we go. Verse 31, What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, um, a lot of people can be, I mean, and will be, you know, principalities and powers. We just studied in Ephesians 6 how Satan and his servants are against us. But it doesn't matter because God is for us. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He will. All things. It's a done deal. We are co-heirs to the family inheritance with Christ, and He is Lord over all. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, Satan will sure try. Others may too. But they are bringing charges to God, and the text says, it is God who justifies. Indeed, He has already justified us. We are not guilty. We are righteous in His sight in Christ. And our accusers will be notified as their accusations come. The verdict is already in. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Again, Satan and his servants will try, but they don't have the power to condemn. Only God does. And He views us in and through His Son. Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And we are in union with Christ, joined by faith to all of who He is and all of what He's done. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. 
and no thing, no trial, no tribulation, no persecution, which we're going to need to think more about in the, in the near future in this culture that we're living in, no other danger, even if they kill us. In all things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who has already conquered. Whether we die or live, whether an angel or demon or powerful world ruler tries to deceive us or overpower us, whether current situations or future situations, whatever it is, nothing, no thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you take your word and plant it in the hearts of your people. God, I pray that you would drive the roots deep to grow much fruit for confidence and assurance and boldness, this great salvation that is ours in Christ. We've only begun to comprehend the depth and height and breadth and width of your love for us in Jesus. Help us to know it more. We pray in his name. Amen. Does anyone have any thoughts or questions? And uh, I'm sorry that it's warm. I, I tried to get them to turn it down and, you know, the... Weather's schizophrenic. What can you do? And it is warm. Anyone? Anyone? I got a comment. Okay. Uh, your, I don't, you said you've done it before, but your, uh, your example, your I guess message today with the book covers and stuff was, was brilliant. Um, I stole it from somewhere. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't remember where I heard it. Yeah, it was really, really nice. Yeah. Whether it's literal for some people, or uh, some people, it's you know, what's the, what's the opposite of literal? Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, you know, God in His kindness not only has He um, stooped to communicate with us, but He's done it in in language that we can understand, and that's what He means when He says justified. I mean, it's He's, he's speaking about a legal situation, you know. He has made a legal declaration about us in His courts. Um, But it just, I think, shows His care and concern for us that He wants us to understand how much He loves us so that He communicates in our language. That's good. Anyone else? All right, we're done. Amen, and open a door.